go. What's up, everybody? Great, so this this is uh you know Moonshine with Shotgun Mulligan podcast. We're sitting here with uh, Tucker Booth, co-author of uh, Lisa Cornwell's uh, new book, Troublemaker. How's it going, man? Glad we got well, you on. So <laughs> crazy is how it's going. We've been trying to do this, now, guys. I thought I had this all figured out. I'm sitting at my son's baseball practice in San Pedro, California. And what do you know? The sound was screwing up. So I'm sitting on the side of the road right now. I'm hoping that I don't get hit by a car while we do this. But thank <laughs> We appreciate the risk. Hey, Tucker, it's all, Tucker, it's, it's all-star season, baby. You got to do anything for your kids. All-star season. No doubt. And sadly, our Redondo Beach all-star team just lost last night in their oh, elimination. Man. Oh, man. Rest in peace, all-star season. But, you know, club team never stops. My right. son, we're Grizzlies, South Bay Grizzlies here, always on always on the field, always playing. So shout out to my boy Max and the Grizzlies and uh, you know, Redondo Beach Little League's uh, all-star season. Yeah, and speaking, of it, your, speaking of your son, so how was the U.S. Open, man? Did you all have a good time? Oh, my gosh. So first of all, I got to give shout outs to Tim K, the caddy, who is the one who pulled the strings to get free tickets. And then even more so to Max Homa. Max Homa, ladies and gentlemen, Max. man of the we didn't know, gave my son and I two free tickets. Now, I don't know if you know this, but Brown's tickets were going for about 400 bucks each. Max, you're a prince. He got his trophy club access. Amazing day. Just such an amazing day. Um, I have criticisms of the course like everybody else, especially as a spectator. A lot of hard angles to see much. A lot of log jams. This course was obviously not designed for a lot of foot traffic from spectators, but we're nitpicking. My son is a huge Ricky fan. Even though he didn't win, we had a blast watching Ricky play. Ricky came out and signed autographs for him afterwards. My son brought a sign. I don't know if you guys saw that on Twitter. Yeah, I saw that post on Twitter. <laughs> what, he brought what was a sign that said, after watching, I'm pretty sure Ricky's my real father, and everybody loved it. Ricky's wife was laughing at it. Um, all these people were wanting to take photos with him and actually the, the full swing producers, uh, f- filmed him and I signed waivers. So be looking for Max on season two. Nice. Of full swing, rocking the Rick- Love it. Starring Max. <laughs> That's hey, great. Talk, man. talk about that real, talk about that real quick. I know we, a lot of people had the criticism of the course and it was hard for some of it to see on TV, but, and obviously the, the criticism too, is a lot of the tickets over half of the, or three quarters of the tickets went to members um, and, and I feel like the U S open is typically been for those, the, the, the tournament of the people. And it just didn't seem like you had that wowness. Um, talk about that. Yeah, I read the same thing. And, you know, if you're being stereotypical about LA, which I, it's pretty easy to do, it's a lot of these big willy corporate people that were there and you could feel it. And we go every year to, to Riviera to the Genesis Open. Well, I've been doing this with Max for years. And there's a way more of a mix at, at Riv for the Genesis. You have some wealthy people. You have some just everyday Joes. Everybody's kind of milling about together. But this felt like the upper crust of the upper crust. And as you might imagine, most of them were sitting up in like the suites and the, the baller clubs and just sitting up there eating and drinking and kind of watching from their vantage points. So it, it didn't have that feel of everybody was down there on the ground. Uh, granted, I'm sure by the end when you saw everybody mobbing the 18th when Wyndham was coming up with Ricky, 
that started to feel like it. Everybody came out of their suites for that. But yeah, a lot of the day, it felt like even in the final couple of groups, and we pretty much stayed real close to Rory and Scotty and, and Ricky and when uh, it, it didn't feel like people following them around. Now, as I said, the course is a labyrinth. And with all of these you know, big grandstands put up everywhere, there really is no straight line from one hole to the next. Thank God my son is smarter than me. He took a photo of the map early in the day and was playing navigator all day. So we, he helped on it. That's awesome. <laughs> but yeah, it didn't feel like there was that, that major championship juice. I mean, but I also, I feel like part of that had as much to do with the fact that nobody set the course on fire on Sunday. I mean, Wyndham won with an even par score. Rory had how many putts not go in and Ricky just didn't have it on Sunday. So that, that made it kind of, you know, a little bit anticlimactic and not taking yeah. anything away from with stoic. Uh, but yeah, it didn't feel like anyone was lighting the course on fire, which definitely would have gotten the crowd more fired up. The one thing I do want to say uh, to Wyndham's credit was there was a lot of really nasty heckling going on all day that was aimed at Wyndham. You could tell everybody wanted Ricky and Rory to win, but the drunks were being really awful to Wyndham. And one drunk on eight, when he got in trouble, was yelling out, I need a double here. I need a double trying to get in his head. Um, Wyndham ended up just bogeying that hole when he could have made a huge mess of it. Uh, later, people were whistling when he was putting, uh, trying to you know whistle right on the putt stroke. I'm sure he felt all day like people were indeed trying to unnerve him and he didn't get unnerved. So I got to give him credit for that because uh, he had to know everybody was rooting against him more than they were rooting for him all day. So, so props to Wyndham for the mental toughness. Yeah. I think his, his mental toughness came through. Cause when I was watching on the broadcast, it was just like, he was the only one that looked like he wanted to win the golf tournament. I mean, just, I'm sure you probably felt that when you were there, Tucker, but it was just like, he looked unfazed and a couple of those holes where he had chance to make double or especially the one where he hit it in the bunker off. I don't know if that was the same hole he hit it in the bunker off the tee laid up and then he sticks his wedge to like, what was it like two feet or something? What was that on 16 or 17? And it's just like, yeah. it just bunches of shots like that, that day, you know, you're thinking that he's going to be out of it. Rory's in the mix. And then he just kept, kept steady. I mean, he didn't play great, but he didn't play bad, you know? Yeah. And I, I, I was there. I was sitting in the stands. I was like one of the few times we sat down was on 16 when it looked like, okay, here's the one chance where he could fall apart and let Rory and Ricky and Scotty back in the door. And, and you're right. Even though he missed that par putt, he stuck that wedge, just missed the par putt. And then instead of making a huge mess of things, bogey and only right. backed up a bit. And you could feel like, you know, all the pressure was off him as soon as he made that, that bogey putt. Uh, and everybody in the stands was like, well, this thing's over. I mean, we knew it right then. So yeah, I, there was a lot of mental toughness and, you know, I know everybody's bagging on Rory and Ricky for not closing in this thing. Um, but I'd say the, the, the scrutiny is more on Rory McElroy than it is on Ricky Fowler to me for all the reasons one would imagine. I mean, Ricky has been clawing his way back from oblivion to back in the top 35 in the world. And uh, we watched him at Genesis. You could see him trending that direction exactly. from the round we fought around there. He's playing so much better. So Ricky doesn't have as much to prove in my mind. He's already proven himself. And he proves that he's a good loser too. You know, coming out and signing autographs for my son. Uh, you know, that made my son's night. And if he hadn't come out, it would have disappointed him. Rory didn't come out. And that's what I'm getting at is I feel like Rory's kind of at this point where 
nine years since his last major, even with all of his accomplishments, everybody goes, why do you keep coming up just short? What's the deal, man? And, you know, you can do the golf is hard routine, but we expect Rory McIlroy to be the heir apparent to expected this for a long time. And it looked like it was going to happen. And now nine years later, I feel like Brooks Kepka has kind of wrenched that away from him kind of by proxy. Right. I mean, just because he's exactly. won five now and he won more current majors and, uh, I can't think anybody besides Brooks that could even really be in that discussion at this point, as far as, you know, who's kind of kind of maybe make a run at becoming somewhere close to the next Tiger Woods. I don't think anybody's going to be Tiger, but you know what I mean? You know, be the new dominant guy in majors and, uh, we're doing it anymore. So I, I feel like he's got a lot more to kind of answer for than, uh, than Ricky does. Right. And just like, for instance, I was watching it with my wife and I was just losing my mind because I'm like telling her Rory has so much talent. Like it, it's it's who we thought, like you're saying, was going to be the next like, you know, not Tiger Woods, but as close as we could get to it. I mean, he has the swing. He has all the tools. And it's just like, yeah, is it, is it a mental block or like what happens with his game that he can't close? You know, it's just it's it's frustrating, to be honest. And what it reminded me about tucker was uh, you know when my dad and i were uh watching golf you know when i was growing up watching golf and getting into it is is we liked watching phil but it was painful you know when when phil was coming down the stretch in these u.s opens and he was finishing second third fourth fifth you know and then he just wasn't coming and he finally got over the uh, you know the edge with with the masters and then he you know he had a you know great rest of his career so far but but, you know, it's just that similar kind of thing just repeating itself. And it's just like, you know, it's the, the old age history repeating itself. It's, it's frustrating because he has all the talent in the world. And it's it's hard for all of us golf fans to realize what's the missing like thing. Like, why can't he do, he do it? Well, you referenced Phil. And I guess if we want to give Phil some credit, Phil kind of, again, rose from the ashes right. when he won the last uh, PGA championship. So Rory still got plenty of time. I mean, and, and let's let's face it, he looked really solid in all facets of his game last weekend, except for putting. Right. Everything else gorgeous. So, you know, Corey's surely one of the greatest drivers of the ball we've ever seen. His irons are pure, his wedge game's great. It's that he kept missing putts and he missed them every way you could miss them. He missed them short, he missed, missed them left, he missed them right. You know, it's it's it was I'm sure he just felt like he just so baffled by it, but that's it. Um, we, we know all the old cliches, but you know, he's, he's driving for show and he's putting for dough. So I'm sure he's going back to work with the Stocktons or whoever he's asking for help with his putting game right now. And that was the difference. I mean, Rory cans two, three putts in that round that he missed and he wins. Right. It would yep. not have been hard for him to, to run off with that. If he had just made a few of those, I mean, he had how many birdie putts that he missed? Way too many. Yeah. Right. Well, you know, Tucker, you know, kind of going on the the golf talk. So I I, I can now see how much of a golf enthusiast you are. So, so how did you run into Lisa? Uh, Like, how did you guys get to know each other? And like, what, what kind of transpired the book and everything like that? Yeah. So Lisa initially followed me. We had already been aware of one another. I'd had media credentials back in the day. I used to write for a website called From the Back Tees, which is now no longer in existence. But I had gone and covered the Farmers Open down in uh, in La Jolla and had met her in the media center there. But, you know, I was just another kind of journalist dude that, that she knew. 
I have a podcast called Rappers Don't Golf, which has had lots of her golf channel compatriots on there over the years, including uh, Karen Stupples, Jerry Foltz, uh, Frank Napolo, and, and numerous others that she's friends with. So she was aware of me because she had seen my podcast. But she followed me on Twitter and I followed her back. And this was right in 2020 when she shot out what I call the tweet heard around the world, which right. was saying I'm contractually bound by my golf channel contract anymore. And I'm about to start talking big and loud about all the sexism and toxicity and retaliatory behavior that goes on there. Hashtag more to come. And I was like, Oh man, you got to come on the podcast. Lisa. <laughs> come like, on now. Yeah, Please come on my podcast. Oh my gosh. We can talk all about it. Whatever you want to talk about. And she goes, well, let's, let's set up a phone call. And that's fairly typical to get, you know, like a getting to know you call with some of these folks. And she calls me and she goes, yeah, um, I'll, I'll definitely do the podcast and, you know, not, not trying to dodge that or anything, but we got bigger things to talk about. And I go, what's that? And she goes, I want you to write my book. I want you to be the co-author on my book. And I go, are you serious? And she goes, well, yeah, I've read some of your stuff online. And she referenced a piece. If you all are out there, you can find it. It's, it's about Michael J. Whalen, who's my great friend and mentor and who was the senior executive producer, the Michelangelo, if you will, of the golf channel who built the whole thing. And uh, that piece is called, I built a masterpiece and then I fell apart. The Michael J. Whalen story. That was something I wrote for over a year with Mike. It's a 70 pager. It came out and almost instantly went viral through the whole sports and golf world. And Lisa had read this piece and said, as soon as I started reading it, I got goosebumps. And I said, you're the guy, you're the guy that I want to write this with. So first of all, thank you, Michael Whalen, as always, for the fact that you gave me this opportunity to write your story. And, and it's a really hard story to write. I mean, he struggles with bipolar disorder. There was uh, suicide attempts, the drug and alcohol battles. I mean, this is a tough story. But Lisa said, if you can write his story, you can write mine. And that was in 2020. And guys, this is right during the pandemic. It took three years for this book to go from concept to sold to on the shelves. So it was not an easy go, even after we started working together. Obviously, it's really emotional stuff that she's talking about and dealing with. As she said to me, she's told me more personal stuff than she's told just about anybody else in her entire life, including members of her family. So I got to hear everything. Um, we, we really threw a lot together. And, and the book is more than just about grinding axes with Golf Channel. It's about being a child prodigy. Uh, for those that don't know, Lisa Cornwell rose to number two in the world for girls as a junior golfer. Uh, she was a childhood a friend of Tiger Woods through the uh, uh, USJGA. Uh, she won four amateur championships in Arkansas in her teens. Uh, she was an amazing golfer and everybody thought she was going to go on to be a major champion and a superstar. And she talks about the birth that she had with golf in her early twenties and pretty much walked away from the game uh, after everybody thought she was going to go pro um, right. and then finding her sports, finding her way back to golf channel. So it's, it's a lot, it's a lot of things. It's a big story, but uh, it's especially a big story about speaking up on behalf of uh speaking truth to power, calling people out when you see stuff that isn't right. And especially trying to give women a voice uh, to be heard more in the workplace. Absolutely. Cause it, you know, what inspired me to be honest, Tucker, when I heard her story and you, we all in the Chris was, and I were talking off air, you know, we all kind of wondered what happened to Lisa? Why is she off some of the coverage and wondering the story? And then she came out with that tweet and then everyone's kind of wondering what's going on. 
But then recently, you know, she, you all released the book and I'm like super interested in hearing it because we, uh, we have a great friend that's, that's in HR and she's fought for, you know, uh, equal, you know, pay equal, you know, uh, against sexism, racism in the workplace. She's actually worked for a, a large media company. I don't know if there's any NDAs with that situation as well, but for instance, she, basically was calling out a, a successful podcaster in the sports world with their unequal pay, their their sexism, their boys club. And she basically got ratted out by him and he pushed back against her and then she had to leave the company. You know, similar kind of situation. So like these stories happen so much more than than we all, you know, know. You know, and it was just was inspiring that that lisa had the courage to to re you know just to to write that with you and, and to come forefront you know and kind of make this well known to people that this is a huge issue and that this is more than just someone that's a disgruntled employee that all these you know haters on on twitter are saying about her this it's much more of a story than that well yeah and, and she's very clear about the fact that she got along with about 98 percent of the people that she worked right. with she loved She's still friends with them. She still speaks with them, goes out to eat with them. So she does not have a long list of, of rivals at all. And, and I can verify this because the first thing that I did when I told Lisa I was going to write this book with her was I said, look, I got to go out and vet all these claims. You know, I'm a journalist and I'm putting my name on this book. So if we're going to make bold claims about these people and about the fact that you were the victim here, I've got to hear from everybody that you worked with that you were not a, pro- a problem, that you right. weren't a troublemaker, like the name of the, you know, she uses the name troublemaker kind of tongue in cheek, but I have, I have to verify these claims and I have to verify these claims about the others too. And she's ah, do it, try me. So I did. And what I found was just about everybody, except for the people that she took issue with said she was a wonderful person to work with. She had great uh, character, she was she was a, a straight shooter, but really bright and brilliant, and and fun and easy to work with. This these were the terms that I heard, and right. then the few people she criticized, she was awful and terrible, and all the things that she said they would say. But these were about five people, and everyone else. I'm talking scads of people that I talked to said she was great, and they said she got a raw deal. So they were they were very clear on and off the record that they felt like. She she de- definitely got the short end of the stick and was conspired against by these very people uh, to kind of edge her out of her job for speaking up about what they were doing. And and what was wild too reading this was was how hard it seems like this legal battle is. So if anyone actually wants to come at some of these big employers, it seems like it's such a daunting financial and just emotional process to even one recount the what you've been through, but but two you know actually take it to court. Yeah, and we get into that. The EEOC case is is a big part of the third section of this book. And yeah, really, really, these big companies bank on the fact that number one, it's going to stress you out to do all this. And number two, it's going to cost a ton of money and time. And and they're kind of playing the long game with you. They've got enough money to burn. They've got lawyers. They're They're kind of trying to wait you out and sweat you out. And they know at the end of the day, even if it does end up going in your favor, they'll just write you a check and, and make you sign an NDA and on they go. So I think Lisa kind of took the road definitely less traveled by here, which is saying, you know what, to hell with the EEOC case anymore after she had gone after it for a while. 
what I want to do is I want to put this in print. I want to leave a lasting document of my statement on this. And no matter what, I want to ring these people up in print for good. And, and not just ring them up, but also, again, encourage everyone, especially women and minorities in the workplace, to speak loud, use all the tools that we have now. Social media has really kind of balanced the playing field in a lot of ways. And we've seen that with the, the Time's Up and Me Too movements. We've seen it with Black Lives Matter. We've seen it with a lot of these movements that at least there is a platform where you can quickly get your message out to everybody, especially if it's about high-profile people. And, and it can cause uh, you know mass movements of people to get on board and demand change. And so she makes a big case about that too. But you're right. It's an expensive battle. It's hard. And you mentioned HR. So let me just say there's a lot about HR in there. And kind of how messed up a lot of the HR mm-hmm. culture is as well. We'll misinterpret HR's intentions uh, toward the, the common worker. Uh, HR's job is to do what's best to make the company money and protect the company's interests in that regard. So they're not always your allies. I, I know right. people in HR that, that definitely try to make life used to be in HR. But a lot of these folks are working more for the for the big dogs than they are for, for the worker bees. So we get into that as well. But yeah, it is. It's a tough battle. And, and it takes someone with really thick skin to be able to go the distance like she has. Tucker, what's been the response? Like you just talked about a little bit. What's been the positive and the negative response from the book since it's come out? You know, the, the, we'll start with negative. As, as you've referenced, obviously, there's always going to be thread trolls on Twitter or whatever. We expected all that. And, you know, honestly, there haven't been as many of them as we thought there might be. But they're they're out there. They're going to go boohoo oh you think you're a victim and and all typical feminist liberal rhetoric or whatever but um you besides that i think the negativity that we've received often has to do with the fact that if you don't know lisa is a cousin of bill clinton through her father her father is first cousins with bill clinton and lisa grew up in fayetteville arkansas going to the governor's mansion young girl she watched bill's a presidential campaign and was there in, in her teen years and saw him get elected president, spent time at the White House, and has played a lot of golf with, with Bill. So she loves Bill. And Hillary ended up writing the foreword for our book. So thank you, Hillary. But obviously, if you're not a Hillary fan, the, the negativity comes loud and proud from these folks. I'll never read this book because <laughs> Hillary wrote the book. Hillary wrote three pages in this <laughs> We've heard plenty of that. Thanks, Trump fans. But, you know, besides Besides that, I gotta say it's almost been entirely positive. I'd say eighty-five to fifteen percent positive to negative, and, and awesome. the positive and uh, from men and women. And I think what's even more remarkable, and uh, I'll tell this one quick story. I got a call from a guy who said, "Tucker, I am a lifelong Republican. I have never ever liked the Clintons at all." And when I saw Hillary's name attached to it, I was very skeptical of this book. But after reading it, number one, I am so impressed by Lisa and her message. And it is a message that goes across the aisle politically, uh, you know, across the aisle gender-wise, so forth. He said, but I also, it now, because I read the parts about Bill, because there are parts in the book about growing up in, you know, in, in, in the Clinton's world, he said, it gives me a newfound respect for their humanity, for Bill and Hillary. And it makes me grateful for their service. I mean, wow. 
that yeah. that alone warms my heart that somebody can see that. And he also ended it by saying, and I wish that more people could have meaningful discussions about their differences instead of just screaming and yelling at each other like we, we've kind of been conditioned to do now. And I couldn't agree more with all that. You know, as somebody Agreed. who's pretty politically ambivalent myself, I say Lisa is one of these uniters, not dividers. And this book is all about trying to bring us all together. And I think it does a good job of that. Awesome. Yeah, that's a, that's an inspiring, inspiring story there. Um, where can we find the book, Tucker, just for everybody? So before we get off here, we want to just make sure we we shout out to wherever we can get that. Yeah, you know, I, I Googled myself and the name Troublemaker the day that it came out, and it was like the most amazing Google search of my life, boys. It's everywhere. Uh, folks, wherever you, you want to buy your books, you can find it. Obviously, it's on Amazon. We encourage you to go there. And if you do buy it on Amazon or any of these websites, please leave a review if you can. 